And he says, they are like sheep with no shepherd. They are distressed and there is no one to lead them. And so he says this, pray to the God of the harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send out more laborers, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, God is concerned with more than just physical healing. He is concerned with something more than just helping you here temporarily on earth. Your spiritual needs are more important than your physical needs, brothers and sisters. And Jesus is walking around healing with a touch. He's walking around and casting out demons with a word. And he's looking at them. And he says their spiritual need is so much more important. But we need more laborers. Jesus is looking at all of the crowd and he says we need more laborers. So he says to his disciples, therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Brothers and sisters, you and I pray to help participate in the advancement of the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, when you and I are praying, we are participating in advancing the kingdom of God. God does not need your prayer to do his will, brother and sister. God is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is everywhere at once. He does not need your prayer, but he allows us to participate in the fulfillment of his will. In what way? When I pray according to the will of God, when you pray according to the will of God, God answers that prayer. And when God answers that prayer, our faith is increased and his will is being done because he is answering that prayer according to his will. So when you and I are praying, God, send out laborers. Lord, the harvest is plentiful. Send out more laborers. God says, yes, I will answer that prayer. Yes, I will fulfill my will. And my faith grows as I watch God answering my prayer. And God's will is also being done at the same time. And so God, through Jesus Christ, is telling us, pray that the Lord of the harvest sends out more laborers into the harvest. Pray that the God of this harvest will send out more workers into the harvest. And as we pray this prayer, God will be willing to answer us. Not only will God answer us, but he will bless us for participating in the fulfillment of his will as he answers that prayer. Once again, Jesus Christ, being God, but also man, is filled with compassion and emotion and sorrow, and he sees all of these people that are being healed. They are being healed. They are being casted out. Demons are being casted out of them. People are receiving physical blessing, but he says their spiritual needs are more important. They are like sheep that are scattered. They have no one to shepherd them. Therefore, you and I, Brothers and sisters, as we prepare our hearts for this first prayer, we'll ask God to do what? To send out more laborers. Very often we do pray for those who are already in ministry, and that is good. We are commanded to pray for those who are overseers, the pastors above us, the leaders, and we do pray for them. But it is also God's will for us to pray that he sends even more laborers out. It is God's will for us to pray for those who are already serving, and it is God's will for us to pray that the Lord sends more laborers. It is God's will for us to pray that God sends more workers. And as we pray this prayer in accordance to God's will, He will answer it, and the Lord will be faithful. The Lord of the harvest will send out 
more labors, and we will do the will of God if we pray this prayer. That being said, let us all bow on our knees and let us lift up this will of God to Him. Lord, send out more labors into your harvest. Good evening, everyone. By the time I close my eyes and open them, it's like you guys tripled, and that's kind of scary. But that's okay. <clears throat> Praise the Lord. It's definitely a blessing to be in a prayer service. It's definitely a blessing to be amongst fellow youth, fellow brothers, fellow sisters. We see each other. We're familiar with one another. Some are new faces. Some are older faces that I've seen for many, many years. Slava Bogu. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that we are here, that we have the time to read God's word, to pray to God, worship him, and think about him, at least the little time that we have, the little time that we have to think about what he's done for us as well as what we can do for him. So I had an interesting scenario, I guess, go on uh, when I was asked to preach this today. And as, as a, someone who teaches Sunday school teach, uh, kids or Saturday school kids and they're teenagers or they're young, you always preload these ideas in the back of your mind. Say, oh, I'll teach that maybe next month or next year. Whenever I get the chance. But I was given the chance to preach this evening. So that one of those ideas in the back was, oh, I, I, I could use it today or this evening. But uh, I spent weeks thinking about it and preparing it. And then the final day, it all just fell apart. And I said, that's not what I'm supposed to preach about this evening. And the Lord definitely did a wonderful work. I totally believe and have faith if I entirely just opened the Bible, first page, first chapter, bang, here it is. Um, work on it. Think about it. Prepare the food, Michael. Prepare it. And um, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that he provides to us. He gives us the answers. He gives us the food that we must prepare for our sheep and our shepherds as well. Praise the Lord. So here's a couple questions. Um, and the older adults are, I guess, the already married gentlemen and gentle ladies. Uh, who are you married to? Who are you married to? Who is your spouse? Um, and that's a pretty interesting question. You, some, some could get a little shy and get a little red cheek like myself right now. But I'm married with Anna. Uh, you know, we have a few brothers who are married and some sisters who are married as well. Um, but who are you spiritually married to? Who are you spiritually married to? Um, you probably never asked yourself that kind of a question, um, but we'll dive into that idea uh, in Romans chapter 7. I'll read about six verses. It's Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law? that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve 
in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Under law, you can find in the Old Testament as well, under law, if you are married to someone, if a woman is married to a man, the Bible is very clear that the only way you can be rid of this marriage or be, excuse me, if you nullify or avoid or delete this marriage, death has to happen. And there is no other way. No matter how much you hate this person, no matter how you feel about this person, how much you can resent this person, or how much you can love this person, your spouse, the person you are married to. The only way you can rid of this contract that you are in is through death. Very, very clear. And this contract, is, it's regardless of how you feel. It's, no matter how bad you feel, how strongly you feel, how intensely, this contract is still there. It is a contract. It is by law. It is the T's are crossed, the I's are dotted, the dotted line is signed as well. There is a contract, and if any of you have taken any business law courses or anything like that, you, there is no way you're getting out of that contract until you fulfill it, or you entirely avoid it, and here comes a lawsuit. Okay, let's not worry about that. Again, the only way out of this contract is death. And even though, again, we feel strongly about this. No matter how badly we want in or out, we're still in a contract. And that's the image we have in connection to ourselves in sin when we're first born on this earth. When we're first born on this earth, we are sinful. We are dead spiritually. We are not born again. We do not have the Holy Spirit within us. We are not married with God, but we are married with sin. Regardless of how we feel, regardless of how intensely upset you are when you sin, if you are not born again, if you are within this contract of sin, no matter what happens, you are married to sin. No matter how upset you are that you did it again or you sinned once more or you know that it's wrong but you enjoy it, no matter how happy you feel when you enjoy the lusts of sin, if you sin or if you are married, you are married regardless, no matter what happens, no matter how hard you work, no matter how you feel about it, no matter how much you come down on your knees to pray, but if you don't die, if one of the spouses don't die, the contract is still there. It's still going to be there. It's still going to be part of your life, and it's not going anywhere. And that's a, that's, that's a really scary thought when you, when you put it in that frame, but it's a really good way to think about it as well. Because you're supposed to die to sin, or someone has to die in this marriage, you and sin. Someone has to die. Now, as we live on this earth, I think we're very, very clear that sin isn't going to die. Sin is very well among this earth and world, and we're all seeing it, and it's only getting worse in some people's opinions, and we see it very clearly. Sin is way out there, and it's attacking absolutely everyone. So the contrary route is you must die. You must die. And I just want us to focus on the idea that the only way out is through our decisions, our choice. Now, there's a really awesome aspect to this because you're not alone on it. You're, 
not forgotten about it. God has plenty of word in the Bible that says he wants you out of this sin. He wants you to die of this flesh, die of this sin, put on the cross daily, put away these fleshly desires, and look after and go after and seek after the Lord. But we have to complete the first step of death. And fortunately enough, we have Jesus Christ who died for us already. He fulfilled the death that we were supposed to commit. We were the ones that were supposed to be crucified on the cross, die to our sins, bear the punishment that Jesus Christ bore, so someone has died. And now we're on to the next step. If we were to look at quickly Matthew chapter 11, I'm not going to pull to it, but Jesus calls to us. God calls to us and says, come to me if you are burdened. Come to me if you are heavy laden, because I have an answer to this. I have something that is easier for you. It is a lighter yoke. It is better for you. Come to me. I want you. But you can't come to me if you are married to sin instead. God absolutely wants your entire life, your aspects, your decisions, your heart, your spirit. God wants to fill you with himself, but he cannot enter somewhere that is full of something else. God cannot enter a contract that he has no writing in. God cannot become married with you, given the Holy Spirit, if you are filled with something else. And that is the sinful flesh that we have been given and have from birth. That's what we have. Unfortunately, whether you like it or not, we have the sinful flesh. And we are definitely fulfilling that flesh if we're not born again. Now, also in Psalms 23, we see that the Lord gives us rest. His waters refresh us. The Lord is so good. The Lord is so fulfilling. The Lord answers everything that we need in our spiritual sense. Like Dennis said, our physical aspects can be healed, but it's the inside that must be taken care of first and foremost. That's the most important part in the idea of when we, when we have this marriage. Now, God wants us, but if we read verse 3 in chapter 7, it says, So then, if she has sexual relations with another man, this woman, while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law, and so on. Even if we try to part-time God on the weekend or on any other day of the week, if we want to part-time God, say, uh, I really enjoy it. I think it's going to work out the way I have it planned, and it's going to be fine, and I'll just come to God, and he'll forgive me on the end of the week. You're an adulterer. The Lord says it himself. We have it. Apostle Paul wrote it, but it's in the Bible, which is the truth. You're an adulterer if you commit this type of hypocrisy, that we want to part-time the Lord if we want to lay with sin one day and then lay with God the other day. That is entirely disgusting to the Lord. That is something we want to prevent. That is something that we want to stay away from. We want to take care of the root cause or the root problem instead of trying to patch it up with a bandage that will end up falling off and become worse. So, in verses 4 through 5, we'll take a look at that as well. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. 
and so on. I won't finish five. We have before our, or during our marriage from the birth of our life, we have the marriage of sin. We not even intentionally sometimes, but we end up producing these fruits of evil. And no matter whether or not you dislike this fruit of evil, it has to be taken or get, you have to get rid of it as well. It has to be cut out. So out of all of this, it's all wrapping up to the same idea that we have a sin problem, that we are not only just enjoying or indulging ourselves, but it's contracted within our life. In the beginning with Adam and Eve, they contracted this sin as a marriage. It's inside of you. You've indulged in it. You've engaged in it. It is your daily life, and you want out of it. And if you don't, it's important to think about why not. Because in the end, the Lord tells us that those who commit these sins will take part in in the lake of fire. Those who do not come after me will not enter the kingdom of heaven. If we die to our sins, if we die ourselves, our body, the contract ends up being disrupted. This contract of a marriage of sin between man and sin, man and the devil, Satan who sends us these sins, it's being disturbed. Now, The best part about this is that death is final. Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross, he didn't say this is temporary. He didn't say this will work for a while. He told us that it is finished. It is done. It is final. This marriage is done. The contract is over. There's no appendix beside it. There's no appendice. There's no terms or contracts. There's no final determinations. There's no appeals. The devil can't come to you and say, but you are still with me. The devil can trick you. He can send you temptations, which will come after this rebirth, which will come after the contract is over because he wants you back. He wants you again. He said, remember how much fun we've had. Remember the lust that we've enjoyed. But you're no longer in the contract. Therefore, you're in a new contract with the Holy Father. The Holy Spirit enters you completely And it's a new one. This new contract cannot be nullified. There's no void to it. There's no special terms that the devil can just simply pull out the page and say, aha, you can still come back to me. You have a new contract with the Lord. You have this new agreement. But you also have to be faithful to it as well. Just because we came down on our knees and we prayed the Lord to forgive us and to accept our hearts and that we believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior and that he has died for our sins, that we have been forgiven, does not mean that we go straight back to the path that we came from. We must be faithful to the Lord. Just as a husband and wife is faithful to one another, we must be faithful because the Lord is always faithful. You will never find a promise the Lord has broken or forgotten. You will never find a moment where the Lord was never just or good to us. It is us that continue to fail. And that is so important for us to remember because we must act upon our faithfulness. Hebrews chapter 11, chapter 10, I apologize, tells us in verse 23 that we must be faithful to the Lord. We must be faithful to this new marriage that we have been given, this new contract that we have signed, this new birth. 
this new life, this new creation, the Lord will take good care of us. But the next question is, who are you married to? Who is your spouse in your life? If you can't answer that question, think about it a little bit. Think about it on, in prayer. Question yourself. Is the Lord in marriage with you? Have you died to sin? Have you rejected sin and turned away from it entirely? If so, welcome to the kingdom of heaven. But if not, question it. And let's question it in prayer. Let us stand on our knees and let us come to Jesus Christ and have a one-on-one. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be something that I have to take part in. You ask yourself this question of, am I in marriage with the Lord? Am I in this contract with someone who has redeemed me, not put me to our evils or not put me to the sin, not send me this sin? Let us pray together, brothers and sisters. How are you guys? Good. That's good. Have we all come here to pray? Well, I hope so, because it is prayer service. You know, when I was asked to preach about two weeks ago, I had this theme, this topic in my mind, and I was working on it for like two weeks. And I was working on it like hardcore Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I was thinking about it all day. Monday, I was thinking about it. Today, I was thinking it, but it just didn't work out. And I was like, God, I can't do this, you know? I can't come out here and not be prepared. Believe it or not, I opened the Bible. And I was like, God, first page, the first verse I'm going to see, I'm going to preach on it. I opened it up, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. You guys can turn there. I won't read from there for now, but we'll talk about it later. My topic today will revolve around how is your prayer life like? And what I want you guys to get from this is I want to encourage you guys to not only pray here at church once a month if you, have, if you guys gather in groups every half a year, a year, but also by yourself because then you will see results. Personally, I haven't, have, I haven't found a single Christian who's maturing in Christ that does not have a strong prayer life. And I aspire to be one of those people, somebody who myself is a prayer warrior. Now, the reason why I want to talk about this, and thoughts started going all over, but the reason why I wanted to talk about it is because I've noticed in our generation, our parents are okay, but our generation, not just in this church, but churches across, we don't know how to pray. We pray for two to three minutes. Say there's a 10-minute given period to pray. We pray for two to three minutes, and then we're like, man, God, what do I even pray about now, you know? Like, I've thanked them for the weather, I've thanked them for keeping me safe. What now? 
and kind of reminds me of a funny story, and I want to share it with you. I was reading this one article one time, and in this article, uh, this pastor was sharing his message, and he was also talking about prayer. And in his article, he actually got a prayer request, and it was from a little kid. He's like, let's just name him Tommy, right? And little Tommy put in a prayer request to the pastor, and he was like, Pastor, I got I'm, I play in a football league, you know, for little kids, and we have a game. Please help us win, or we need a new quarterback. You know what I mean? Things like that, they're silly. How does that relate to us? We usually, when we pray, after we get done with our two, three-minute prayer because we don't know what to pray about, And the reason we don't know how to do it is because we're not strong in our prayer lives. When we pray, our faith grows. Now, faith is just like a muscle, right? You can't grow any muscles on any part of your body unless you work it out, just like prayer. And I've realized that when we pray, we don't get results. We don't get results because our prayer life is weak. Our faith is weak. We have no faith. We run to God for the most part only when there's trouble. Something happens, we run to God. What about our own personal prayer lives? Do you guys come home, close your doors, as it says in the Bible, and pray? Do you pray for your family members? Do you pray for your friends? Do you pray that God gives you more faith to do what is right? Do you pray that God gives you faith to spread the gospel as we were told to do? When we talk to God in the prayers that we have right now, I've already mentioned it. I mentioned little Tommy, and I already mentioned the example of how the majority, I won't say us, but I'm just saying the majority of people, how they pray. It goes something like this. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the weather. I thank you for keeping me safe. And those prayers are cool, but they're kind of weak sauce, if you want me to be honest. They're weak because we're not strong. We haven't grown. I am convinced that we will see results when we pray. And I firmly believe this. We will see results in your life, in your neighbor's life, in your business if you have one, in your church life, in your family life, if you pray a lot more. If you get on your knees when no one else is watching and you pray for God's blessing and you pray that God grows your faith so much that crazy things start to happen. And I want to share a story of something that happened to me because my prayer life grew. So, as you guys might know, I'm not a preacher. I'm not here very often. But I am a teacher at Saturday school, and I have been for five years. And when I started, I was kind of whack. You know what I mean? Like, I was okay, but I wasn't the best. I had no prayer life. I knew the Bible a little bit. And it was okay. It was mediocre. And it finally got to me that 
I cannot be productive if I do not pray. And so I started praying. This was my prayer for a very long time. And I'm telling you, it works. And I'll share the story of some examples of what has happened to me. I prayed that while reading the word, God would open things up to me. And I also prayed, this was my desire, that I could preach the good news to other people. Not only people in my class, not only do I, would I do a good job, but also to preach the gospel to other people, including work, in church, family, whatever, by the way I live, by the way I speak. Um, it does say in Colossians, I think chapter 3, uh, maybe four, 3, um, that not only were we bought, we're made new again. We have a new life. So I wanted to show that. And so I was working on preaching the gospel, right? And I was praying. I was like, God, I want to be pre- I want to preach the gospel in such a clear way that it's understood. And I also do not want to be afraid. Because for whatever reason, the gift that God gave us that we need to share with our neighbors, we don't share because we have fear. For whatever reason. I used to be scared. Hardcore, you know. But as you pray, as your faith grows, your desire to share the word of God with your coworkers that fear disappears. I, and obviously, all glory to God, have been able to share the gospel a lot more with my coworkers, engaging in conversations as in like when they say, I'm a good person. And then you say, oh, you think so? Well, let's go to the Ten Commandments, you know? And the fear completely disappears. And as you start engaging in that sort of thing, your faith grows even more, you guys. I cannot describe it. Um, I'm not sure who this quote is from, but it says, if we only knew a little more about what prayer does in our life, we would be praying a lot more. And I firmly believe that. Now, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. When I was nervous... I remember reading this verse earlier, you know, when I was younger. But I really, it, it attached to me. So let's read it. Philippians chapter 4, verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 6. We could read 7, why not? Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So here's what I want to tell you guys tonight. Having a prayer life is important. If you don't have a prayer life, why not? And if you don't have a prayer life, this is a pretty good time to start having one. So when you're praying right now, and you don't know what to pray, you're out of, you don't know what to pray after a minute or two. I would encourage you guys to start referencing scriptures. The Bible is full of prayers. Psalms, um, you can find it in um, in Philippians, Corinthians, Paul's prayers. Thank God, there's a lot to be thankful for. And so with that, what is your prayer life, and what are you going to do about it? 
Let's get on our knees and pray and ask God, God, I want to have a prayer life if I don't already. Because I know that once I do, my faith will grow. It has to. So with that, let's all pray. We don't need to look at our neighbors. Prayer is between you and God. Praise God. I will be speaking today on friendship with Christ. Before I speak about friendship with Christ, I want to speak about friendship with man. What does a healthy friendship look like? I've narrowed it down to these three things. It might not be just these three things, but this is what I came up with. A healthy friendship has these three qualities. Fellowship, constant fellowship, agreement, and exclusivity. Now, what is fellowship? Fellowship is spending quality time together. Constantly spending quality time together. I want to ask a question. How long can you go without having fellowship with a person and still remain friends? Six months? A year? Have fellowship with a person once a year and still remain friends? I doubt it. Yeah, maybe once a month you see that guy at statewide, you know, when you have fellowship for an hour and a half, you know. Maybe. I could see it. Um, So... I want to ask a deeper question, though. I want to ask Dennis. Dennis, who is your best friend here on earth, besides for Jesus? Who's your best friend? His wife. That's a good answer. And I want to ask Dennis a question. Can you maintain a healthy relationship with your wife by just having fellowship once a month with her? So once a month is not going to cut it. So, but I thought we just said you can have fellowship once a month with a person still remain friends. You say, Victor, that's, that's a completely different relationship. It's not even the same thing. So we see that there's different levels of friendship. So the level of friendship, or in other words, the importance that a person has to you, that dictates the amount of fellowship that you will have with that person. Now, I'll pick on Dennis a little bit. I know this is not true. I'll just do an illustration. If, um, if Dennis, let's say he has fellowship with his wife once a week, just once a week, he sees, he, he sees her every day, but he chooses to have fellowship once a week. But he spends three days a week with his friends, you know, boating, fishing, golfing, camping, whatever else. What would you say to Dennis? I think there's something wrong, right? It looks like you might love your friends more than you love your wife, right? Why could you say that? Why could you boldly say that? Because he spends more time with his friends than he does with his wife. This isn't true. This is just an illustration. Now, this also shows that the amount of fellowship you have with the person shows their level of importance to you. I'm not talking about wanting to have fellowship with a person and not being able to, like in uh, countries where they persecute Christians and they separate, you know, two believers and they can't have fellowship. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you can have fellowship with a person and you choose not to. I'll give you another example. If I say to Ilya, Ilya, me and Dennis, me and Dennis are good friends, right? He says to me, Victor, you're a liar. 
You haven't talked to him in 12 months, even though you see him every week at youth. Now, that would be true, wouldn't it? If I see Dennis every week but choose not to talk to him and only talk to him once every year, we're probably not friends, right? That's the hard truth. So to have a healthy friendship is to have an active friendship. I want to talk about the second point, the second quality of a healthy relationship, which is agreement. For an example of this, we'll turn to Amos chapter 3, verse 3. Amos chapter 3, verse 3. It says these words, Can two walk together except they be agreed? In other words, how can two walk together except they be agreed? Now, two people walking together in the same direction, on the same path, they're not going to walk for very long if they have different ideologies or different thinkings, right? If I say, you know, I think we're going the wrong way. We should go that way. And he says, no, 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 no. We need to go that way. And we're both set in our ways, and we're both convinced, and we're not willing to change. Who, what's going to happen? We're going to split ways. So you see that two people cannot walk together except they be agreed. Another part of the agreement is mutual respect. That is not talking down to one another. You listen to one another. You care about each other, right? And if someone continuously talks down to you, are you going to want to have fellowship with them? They're constantly deriding you, making you feel less than them. You know, you're not going to want to have fellowship with this person. You're going to distance yourself from them. And the third point of a third quality of a healthy friendship is exclusivity. I'm not talking about like cliques or anything like that, where you have your own little group and you don't invite anybody else and you're kind of exclusive. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about You've heard that saying that says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I want to twist it a little bit and say, the enemy of my friend is my enemy. In other words, you can't play both sides. You can't be friends with your, the enemy of your friend, right? If your friend has an enemy, you can't go and be friends with that guy and be friends with your best friend still, right? Because that sows distrust and it's actual betrayal, right? Because he doesn't know what you're talking about behind his back, you know. That's like, why would you do that, you know. That's not, mutual respect also counts in there a little bit. So in review of those three things, we see that a healthy friendship is built on fellowship, agreement, and exclusivity. I want to tie this to the spiritual now. How this relates to our friendship with Christ why is fellowship with Christ important? Now, we talked about the importance of a person dictates the amount of fellowship that you have with them. Now, who is the most important person to you? Your spouse? How long can you, how long can you go without having fellowship with your spouse and still remain in like a healthy relationship? Five days out of the week? You guys don't see each other every day, right? maybe five, six days a week, four days a week. But who is more important to you, your spouse or Christ? The person you spend the most time with shows, shows to you how important that person is to you. Now, what does fellowship with Christ look like? I want to read from John chapter 15, verses 7 through 14.
John chapter 15, verses 7 through 14. It says these words, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done to you. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken to you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. Verse 14 was always really confusing to me. Like, who says that? You're my friends if you do whatsoever I command you? What kind of friendship is that, right? But if you take it out of context, it doesn't make sense. But if you read it in the context of chapter 15, it starts to make a little bit more sense. Jesus in that verse, verse 14, he's not saying, he's actually balancing the friendship, the scales of friendship. Because if verse 14 didn't exist, then our friendship with Christ would kind of be one-sided. You see, it says in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done to you. That's a promise. He's saying that abide in me and my words abide in you. Basically, pray and your prayers will be answered of God, right? But that is a one-sided relationship. That's like take, 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 you know, gimme, gimme, gimme. And you're not giving anything to God, right? But Christ is balancing the scales and he's saying, not only will I give to you, but you must also give to me. And as Michael was reading, right? I think it was Michael who was reading. Um, my yoke is not heavy, right? The burden is light. Christ in verse 14 is basically saying that the words that you read, you have to obey them. You have to be obedient to the commandments that you're given. I'll give you an example, a little um, illustration. You work in an office. You get a memo that says the copier is broken. Don't touch it. We're, we're repair technician is on his way. You read the memo, and you, you ignore it. You're like, oh, whatever. You know, it's another one of those things. And then you remember that you need to make a copy. So you run over the copier, open the lid. The lid falls off or breaks. You know, you destroy the machine, basically. Why did you do that? Because you weren't paying attention, you weren't obedient to the, to the commands that you were given, basically. You weren't obedient. You can't read the Bible the same way that you read that memo. You can't just glance over it and not, and be so dismissive about it. Christ is saying that you have to read the word and obey the word. That is what Christ is saying in verse 14. You must obey what you read. That is what fellowship with Christ looks like. Fellowship is a two-sided, Right? I have fellowship with you, you have fellowship with me. That's what Christ is saying. So, read, pray, obey, repeat. Now, the second quality of a healthy friendship is agreement. Agreement is, in the spiritual realm, is you must agree with God about what he says in his word. Now, what he says is true. Now, if you were to stop somewhere, in a, you're driving through a town, you don't know where you're going, you're out of gas, 
you stop and ask some guy for uh, directions and you say, where's the nearest gas station? He says, you know, go north five blocks, turn right, you know, half a mile, it's on the right. But you say, you know what, I think I saw a gas station a little bit back that way. And he's like, you know what, that one's been closed for years. You're like, no, 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 I think it was open when I drove by. And he's like, okay, what are you going to do? If you don't believe the words that he says to you, are you going to obey them? No, you're going to go your own way, right? If you think that you know better than that person, you're not going to obey what they say. So if you don't believe the words that God says in the word, you're not going to obey them, are you? And the third point of a third quality of a healthy friendship is exclusivity. For this, I want to turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, says these words, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. In other words, you cannot serve God and money. You can't serve two masters, Christ is saying. You can't serve anybody but God, right? He's saying not only money, but anything that gets in the way of you and God. And I want to read another verse from James chapter 4 that will add on to this quite nicely. James chapter 4. James chapter 4 and verse 4. says these words, You adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that the friendship of the world's enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? He's saying that you can't be friends with the world. Friendship with the world is, in other words, hostility with God. Enmity is the exact opposite of friendship. It's a deep, deep hatred, right? That's kind of the definition of it. That's a strong, that's very strong language. God is saying, you can't play both sides. You can't serve me and serve something else. You can't be part-time with me, like Michael said. What, is, what, what happens when you play both sides? There's distrust and betrayal, right? God even goes so far as to say that you want to be friends with the world? You're going to be my enemy. God's not messing around with this. So to review what we've talked about, friendship with Christ is one fellowship, and daily fellowship. In other words, read, pray, obey, and repeat. Number two is agreement. Fellowship with Christ is agreement. In other words, agreeing with God that what he says in his words is true. And three is exclusivity. You can either be friends with God or you can be friends with the world. You can't play both sides. Let us pray. Praise God, brothers and sisters. Um, I believe that the Lord worked through us 
these brothers were preparing sermons and last minute they got changed. I know what that's like. That didn't happen to me today, but that's okay. The Lord is faithful. And I believe he spoke to us here today. And if there are some things that we want to pray for and we don't know what to pray for, like Ilya was saying, we pray for ourselves. We pray for blessings on ourselves. Thank you for the weather. Thank you for this. We can do better than that, brothers and sisters. But it requires that we discipline ourselves, that we actually try, that we actually close the door in our closets and we pray to God sincerely and genuinely. Some other things you can think about when you pray. Pray that God sends out more laborers and workers. Pray that God draws nearer to you. Pray that you have fellowship with him. Pray that God does what? Opens the word when we read it. Pray that God gives us opportunities to evangelize and to preach. And pray that God uses us. And he will answer those prayers that are offered according to his will. God will gladly answer those prayers that are offered according to his will. Before we wrap up with a short prayer and needs and whatnot, there's a couple announcements as you guys know, there is the Bible competition coming up. As I recall, if I am not mistaken, it'll be on the second week of November. This is going to be on the book of 2 Timothy, and they will follow the translation they did last year, which is the NASB, the New American Standard Bible Version. I am one of the teams. I think the other Bible studies are also teams if they want to be. If not, you guys can make your own teams. How about that? But let's go ahead and prepare for that Bible competition. There's also the New Year's tickets on Thanksgiving. They will sell the tickets for the New Year's.